Welcome to the Mike Litton Experience Podcast. Mike has over 31 years experience in real estate, finance, and investing. He's passionate about being a father, a teacher, a realtor, an investor, and a leader. Everyone has a story, and our passion is to help them tell it. And now, introducing the host of the Mike Litton Experience, Mike Litton. So what can you expect from the Mike Litton Experience? You can expect stories that will inspire, motivate, advice that will sharpen your focus, and expert information on real estate, finance, and market conditions. Scott Groves, thank you so much for coming on the Mike Litton Experience, bud. I am so excited to have you on. As you know, or as I told you, I'm a huge fan of yours. I'm in your Facebook group. I read your book, Lead Generate Twice. Um, I am just absolutely in awe of you, and I know how busy you are. I just really appreciate you taking the time to be on here, man. Thanks, man. You caught me in a hotel. We actually just finished up uh, one of our live coaching events, and then I'm headed to a dad's group tomorrow. So this was perfect time for us to meet. And thanks, man. It's it's always a privilege to be interviewed, especially by you know a fellow producer. So we snagged you just in time. That's awesome, dude. So so as you know, your everyone has a story, right? And our passion is to help them tell it. So with your permission, we're going to start with where you were born, go all the way up to today with your life story. And then we can talk about anything you'd like to talk about, coaching, books, whatever. Okay. Sounds good. All right, buddy. So where were you born? Uh, Glendale, California, 1970. Okay. So that puts okay. me uh, 44 years old as the time of this recording. And yeah. until about two years ago, I was a lifelong Los Angelino. Thought that I would work until the day I die in Los Angeles and then retire in San Diego. And uh, the world had different plans. So we'll probably get to that. Yeah. Okay. So 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 you grew up in Glendale. Yep. Right. What was your favorite thing about growing up in Glendale? Well, you know, it's kind of weird, man. My dad was a regional manager for U-Haul. And I, your listeners probably don't know this, but at large storage complexes, so um, <laughs> at like U-Haul storage or pick and, pick and save storage or whatever, yeah. it's way cheaper for insurance if you have somebody living on the property. And so a I lot of my childhood, a lot of my childhood, I lived on U-Haul properties. Really? Um, yeah, because these places would have like an apartment attached to the U-Haul. So like grew up, my dad was a Ryder truck guy and um, just kind of all in and out of Glendale, wherever we could rent a cheap apartment. And then in my junior high and high school years, we lived in a few, you know, I like to make the joke that I was so poor. I used to live in a storage unit. That's not exactly <laughs> true. We lived in an apartment. You know, the manager's apartment as a storage unit. <laughs> but talk about being self-conscious, you know, when you're, when you're just getting into those junior high, high school years and it matters what you wear and what you listen to and how cool you are to have to tell the people like, oh yeah, we moved to Palmdale and I live down on Sierra highway next to all the kind of filthy hotels. I live at a storage unit at U-Haul. They're like, what you yeah. live in a storage unit. It's just, it's just weird. So I grew up because my dad's job transferred them pretty frequently. I lived all over the Southern California area, you know, out in the Valley, up in the high desert, in the Glendale Burbank area. But to answer your question, the, the best thing about growing up in that area is my parents knew we moved so much. The one constant they uh, kept in my life was Cub Scouts through Boy Scouts. Oh. So I was a uh, I was a Boy Scout from the first day of first grade or second grade, whenever they would let us start, 
all the way up until the day I left for the army. And my lifelong friends, ironically, are not, you know, high school, junior high, grade school kids. My lifelong friends that I still keep up with in my 40s and I'll travel to Singapore, Jerusalem or wherever they're at are all guys from Boy Scouts. And so that That's was so cool. that was the best thing about my childhood. That's so cool, man. So let me ask you this. Growing up, who was the most influential person in your life? It's a toss up. Uh, my dad was like by far the hardest working person I've ever met. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of my work ethic comes from him. And then, you know, my dad's pretty crude, a lot of inappropriate jokes, uh, you know, <laughs> always worked in a garage or on on big trucks. Um, and then uh, my buddy, Bob, who was my best friend growing up, uh, older, uh, was his father. And he was a leader to us all through Boy Scouts. Bob was the guy that like taught, taught me the 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 more appropriate side of being a man, right? Not oh, to cut the women, don't say dude and um and huh. And, uh, you know, my dad worked really hard and uh, provided the best he could for us. And I'll, I'll be forever grateful for that. And because of how hard he was working, there's a lot of stuff he had to miss, you know? Yeah. And so a lot of that Boy Scout stuff, my buddy, uh, my buddy Bob was there as, uh, as you know, dad 2.0 or yeah. second, second father, I should say. That's cool, man. That's cool. So what high school did you graduate from? I ended up transferring in 10th grade up to Highland High School in Palmdale, California, which okay. the only people, the only reason people know Palmdale is because of that Afro man song. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so I, I moved up there and it was big time culture shock um, yeah. for the first time in my life. You know, LA is such a melting pot. Moving up to Palmdale is the first time I was exposed to like, like racial concerns. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's just a different environment, right? And thank God for Coach Mike Young. I found wrestling and got into wrestling because, you know, sadly, had I not found Coach Young, who tragically passed away about a year ago, uh, I, I might have not stayed on the straight and narrow during high yeah. school. But thanks to wrestling and my dad and Boy Scouts and a couple other mentors, even though I was growing up in Palmdale, which is kind of the methamphetamine capital of California, it is too. Uh, I, was, I was able to stay on the straight and narrow and then... I left the day, like maybe a month after high school is over, I left for the army. Cause I was like, there is no way I'm getting stuck in Palmdale. Wow. So you were, so you just, you just got, I was going to ask you about your, what you, if you had a sport and if so, what that favorite sport was, did you have a favorite subject in high school? Yeah. Girls. Um, okay. I got you. That was my favorite subject. Um, I, got you. I think it was mine too. <laughs> funny, funny story. My senior year of high school, I had wrestling, I was the student body vice president. I was just mesmerized with females. And I learned that I could ditch school and go surfing instead of hanging out in Palmdale. Yeah. And so even though I had like straight A's my senior year of high school, I had 55 absences. And they yeah. had this deal where it's like, you know, there's only like 180 school days or something. Right. And they had this deal where if you had more than 30 absences, they just didn't let you graduate. So my mom had to go like, throw herself at the mercy of the school board and be like, he's got straight A's. He's leaving for the army. Just get rid of them and pass them through. And oh they did. I, I almost had to repeat my senior year, year of high school, even though I had straight A's. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. That's wild, man. Yeah. So you, so I, so obviously you graduate high school, you go into the army. Why the army? Um, you know, it was kind of crazy. Like, again, parents are great people, but neither of them went to college. So they didn't really quite understand like, oh, somewhere around ninth or 10th grade, we've got to get you on the college path. You have to apply. So I just kind of blew all that stuff off. And then I'll never forget, there was a girl, Danielle Kumas. 
Uh, and we were in the same class together. And I found out that like, we could all go take the ASVAB test, which was the personality test for the military. Sure. And she was kind of cute. And I would be sitting next to her for this three hour test. So I'm like, Oh, let's, let's go do that. Right. And go. so I took the test and I, I scored pretty high. So these recruiters started coming around. They're like, Hey man, you know, you could go into the Navy and be a dentist, or you could go into the, um, the air force and, and work on planes or go officer candidate route, you know, maybe apply to this and that. I'm like, no, if I'm going to go into the military, I want it to be like the action movies and blow stuff up. So I'm going to go into the infantry, infantry and the guys, okay. we, we, we can sign you dummies up all day long. Okay. So I signed up to go into the infantry. And then little did I know back then uh, they had this program where if you signed up uh, for like in your senior year of high school, you mm -hmm. only had to do three years instead of four years. So Ooh. I signed up to only do my three years. However, Talk about life-changing set of circumstances. At the time, if you only signed up for three years, even if you were an infantry guy, they wouldn't send you to airborne school. They wouldn't send you to ranger school. They wouldn't do any of the cool stuff because you didn't have a four-year investment. So right. they weren't going to invest in you. Huh. And what's crazy is like, had I known that, I would have just signed up for four years because I wanted to do all the cool airborne stuff and not just sit in a motor pool in Kansas and like, sweep dry sweep and clean up oil stains and drink too much beer right. um so i would have done that but i was in from 97 to 2000 my exit day is actually 9 11 2000 so had i signed up for four years i would have done the ranger school i would have done the airborne yeah. school all that stuff and yeah. there's no way i'm getting out of the military once 9 11 starts so okay. it's like and just a couple of these little weird random decisions are probably the difference between being like a lifelong infantry soldier and you know getting out in 2000 because there wasn't a whole lot going on i was so bored at fort riley kansas i volunteered to be part of a unit to go clear landmines in bosnia i was like can i just go somewhere and do something and they're like no you're not an engineer you're an infantry guy i'm like i don't care just teach me how to dig up mines i'll go out there and like i'll figure it out right and they're like it's not how this works sir um oh, well. so i got out in 2000 and then almost re-enlisted on you know September 12th or 13th. And the yeah. recruiter talked me out of it. And um, it, it's just, it's crazy how these little tiny decisions or accidents as they may be have these wild, wild implications on your life. Yeah. It's, it's the way, it's the way it goes, man. It's like, you look at, you look at the path, right. And there's no way you could have written that script. There's no, no, way. no chance. There's no way you could have known on September 11th of 2000, what was getting ready to happen 365 days later, you know, yeah, nobody, it's did, bonkers. you know, that was crazy. That was crazy. And you're right. If you had been in for four years, right. And your separation date was nine 11. There were a whole bunch of those guys that were airborne and all that kind of stuff. They didn't get out. Yeah. They're they're not out. And the, and the guy and the, and the military wasn't letting a bunch of them out. Right. Yeah. They were making them stay, even though they were, you know, done, done their four years or whatever. So yeah, man, that's crazy. Okay, yeah. so September 11, 2000, you're out of the Army. Then what happens? Yeah, uh, you know, I got out of the Army, and and all I knew was that, like, my mom's like, you have to get a job with benefits. You have to get a job with benefits. She's been, like, a lifelong employee of Thrifties and then Rite Aid, and she, her way of providing for the family as my dad was jumping from job to job and location to location was to make sure that we are always well covered with health insurance, right? So right. it's like, 
the the braces, the all that stuff for my sister, especially. Um, so I was like, okay, I gotta find a job with benefits. And I right. I hooked up with an old uh, a friend of mine, a female friend, and she's like, hey, we got this program here at Washington Mutual where if you just if you work at least twenty hours a week while you're going to college, we'll pay like full benefits. So I'm like, all right, cool, I got, wow. got a job as a teller at go. Washington Mutual. Yeah, bonus, right? So I can go be a teller. I can get a real a real job working at a bank, and I'll go to college. So I was going to college full time and working like 20 hours a, a week being a teller. And it, anybody who's in the mortgage or loan or finance space will find this funny. You know, they called me in like a couple of months into being a teller and they're like, Scott, they're like, you're horrible, man. You you are the worst teller. You're out oh, of balance. You're, <laughs> you're kidding. Balance oh my gosh. Every day. Yeah. They're like, they're like, you're out of balance every day. I'm like, yeah, but like, I'm not stealing from you guys. I'm out of balance, like seven cents, $1. I'm like, that stuff matters. Right. And they're like, it matters. We're a bank. We like, we monitor down to the penny. I'm like, penny, oh, yeah. you know, I'm just going so fast and I'm talking to so many people, uh, you know, it's like whatever. And she's like, right. well, you know, I'm supposed to fire you. Um, but yeah. you're, you're really good at talking to the clients. So do you want to like take some of these personal banker classes and start doing second mortgages and loans and opening accounts? I'm like, wait, so the options are get fired or get promoted. I, I think I'll go ahead and take the promotion. Let's take so the promotion. I, <laughs> I took the I'll promotion. I'll take door number two. <laughs> um, took the promotion, uh, dropped out of Pasadena City College. I, I don't know. I think I racked up like 40 or 50 credits in a year, year and a half, something like that. Got into loans full time and just, you know, rode that wave up until it crashed horribly in 2008. Yeah. So Washington Mutual, I, I ended up, I ended up selling a bunch of Washington Mutual REOs after the after the crash, you know. Sure, uh, you did. Yeah, I did, man. I mean, it was um, it was crazy. So, um, in fact, that was a that was a big big part of the portfolio that I sold was was Washington Mutual. I did a lot for J.P. Morgan Chase, and they you know bought them over a weekend, right? Yeah, um, yeah, that was um, that was a little crazy. So. So you so you go to work for Washington Mutual, you work up until the up until the crash. Then what happens? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Anyone that's interested in that story, one of the best financial books, and I'm shocked they haven't made it into a movie like The Big Short or Margin Call or something. One of the best books ever is called The Lost Bank, the story okay. of Washington Mutual. It's their rise and fall. And it's it's kind of crazy because I know a bunch of people they are referencing in that in that yeah. deal. And you mentioned it, you know, JP Morgan was going to buy them on like a Tuesday or Wednesday and the stockholders would have been made whole and whatnot. And then some probably illegal deal between the government and Jamie Dimon goes down where like all the auditors that were coming up with a stock price, they exit Wednesday. Yeah. And on Thursday night, the government calls the bank in, solves it and gives it to JP Morgan instead yeah. of JP Morgan Chase having to buy them. Basically so just signed it over to him. Oh, dude, the shadiest, shadiest stuff. And it's crazy because, you know, when Washington Mutual is crashing, mm -hmm. I'm a 27, 28-year-old man. I've never seen a bank fail before. I'm like, oh, yeah. well, I'll just buy Wamu Common stock all the way down. And a buddy of mine who worked for Citibank at the time, we've done the math. And it's like all of his shares that went down, Citibank went down to like 90 cents a share, $2 yeah. a share. But, you know, the CEOs at Citibank drank with the right people in um, in in Washington and Kerry Killinger and the CEO of Washington Mutual on the on the West Coast did not have those government relationships. Like the net worth swing of my friend who had forty or fifty thousand shares of Citibank versus my forty or fifty thousand shares of Wamu that went to zero. It's like 
this is probably what like just entrenched me as a libertarian is that the government literally stepped in and picked winners and losers and like well we're gonna back Citibank but not Washington Mutual so like yeah. you know extrapolate this out almost twenty years later and mm -hmm. my buddy Matt has like a couple extra million dollars in the bank that just got wiped out uh, by Washington Mutual stock so uh, not that I'm still bitter about that or anything but I'm yeah, still no, bitter. No bitterness. You can tell. You can tell. Yeah. You completely let it go. Totally let it go. I try to bring it up on every podcast. More, more reasons to distrust the federal government. I love it, man. I love it. So, so after the great crash, you and what was the name of the book again? The lost. It's called the lost bank. It's lost phenomenal. Bank. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna read that. I'm I'm buying it as soon as we get off the air. So 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 after the great crash, then what happens? Where do you go? Yeah, you know, I kind of bounced around uh, over the course of two years. I landed at Home Services Lending of America, which was like an in-house lender for home services real estate. Yeah, and I remember. We, yeah. we were kind of like, I don't know, can, can we say redheaded stepchild? We were kind of like yeah, the redheaded kind of, stepchild. That's kind of what you were, yeah. Yeah, of, of Wells Fargo. <clears throat> They yeah. were kind of the, you know, they were still going through stuff. So, I mean, I remember there was months where like, I, I, I'm not kidding, Mike, I would work from sunup till sundown to close one loan. Yeah. It was like, go back to the client and get this. Now go back to the client and get this and go back to the client and get this. And I think in two, 2009, I made like $18,000. I funded like three or four loans, you know. Yeah, um, they, was still they, driving documented, a, they documented and conditioned you to death. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was brutal. unreal. Absolutely unreal. Every deal, every deal that we got anywhere near them on, we were we were running, you know, an, another application with another lender, right? Like a for sure, out, you know, because it was just like we knew it was we knew what was going to happen, you know. Uh, it was yeah, so. it was so brutal. It was so. It, I mean, it was just. And I'm not scared of hard work, but I don't like dumb work, you know. And, and we would have this condition list come back where it's like we need these seven letters of explanation, and I'm yeah. looking at it, and I'm like. Well, if every letter of explanation can say anything the client wants to write, why are we asking for the letter of explanation? You know, right. they wanted a letter of explanation if somebody's business income went up. They want a letter of explanation if it went down. They want a letter of explanation it if it went the same. Right. Yeah, it was just, it was just, it was a really hard time in the business. But I will forever be grateful for that because it allowed me for the first time in my career to sit inside a real estate office. So it was Prudential when I first started there. And then they, they transferred over to home services, lending America, finance, mortgage, house loans, or whatever Warren Buffett called it. Right. Um, but uh, it, it allowed me to really understand from like 2009 to 2013 on like how to build referral relationships, how to talk to realtors in person, how to like always, always, always be on stage, you know, because yeah. like my deal with myself was I'm going to I'm going to give this the old college try or I'm going to go yeah. work, you know, middle management at In-N-Out Burgers. Um yeah. And so I was there from like 6 a.m. till 10 p.m. Because I'm like, I'm going to be here before every realtor who gets here. And I'm going to be here when every realtor leaves, right? Yeah. And so you end up just putting in 14, 15 hour days and then working Saturdays and then going to open houses on Sundays. So it's probably that four years from 2009 to 2013 is the hardest I ever worked. And then that laid the groundwork for like almost like I was a couple bucks shy of a hundred thousand or a hundred million dollar a year in production in 2014, back when there was very few people doing a hundred million a year in production and almost nobody. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, started with, uh, with uh, movement mortgage when they were a very, very young company and kind of rove that rode that way up. And, and yeah, it's just been, it's been wild, man. Mortgages are hard. They can be frustrated. Like, 
Working with people can be frustrating. Working with realtors can be frustrating. Building people's financial portfolio can be frustrating. But consider I'm effectively a you know college dropout who was almost a high school dropout because they weren't going to let me graduate. Uh, the business has been really, really rewarding to me. Well, thanks for thanks to your mom, you're not a high school dropout, right? Exactly, exactly. I, I probably hope you kiss her every time you see her and thank her, right? You know, yeah, yeah. Like, thank God for mom, right? Mom goes to the map for you. I mean, come on. So, um, so you know, I I had a similar situation where I where I was in house in house lender for a Century Twenty One franchise here in San Diego. There's five offices, including a Relo office, right? So four real estate offices. And I had never worked in a real estate office before. I had always called on them. I had gone in as a lender, right. all that kind of thing. But I'm telling you, there's something to what you're saying. When you work in a real estate office, there's there's something to it where you just get used to being there. And there's yeah. a there's a there's a there's a real honest to goodness advantage to it because you're a lender but you feel like you belong. Yep. Right. Like it's a different, it's just a different thing where, you know, your competition would walk in and they're trying not to get kicked out. Right. They're trying to make sure that, you know, they see as many people as they can in the small little amount of time that they have before the manager catches up to them. Right. 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 For, for us, we were living there. Right. Yeah. It was our, it was our ecosystem for, for years. Right. And it just, it's a different thing. And when I ended up, when I ended up starting my, my Keller Williams office, it really was, you know, I owned it, of course, but it really did change being in that office environment with other realtors, being a lender, okay? So I was approved for a Keller Williams franchise in 2000. We opened in 2001 as a lender. Mm. I was not approved as a realtor, okay? I was approved as a lender, but I was killing it, <laughs> right? I was a very, very high-producing realtor, or I mean, right. lender, right? And because I was doing that and because I was teaching realtors and all that kind of thing, you know, that got me, that got me points for, for getting approved. Right. Um, and it went out with, and I could solve problems for people. Right. That kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, man, there's something to that, 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 that being comfortable that way, there's something to it. It really is. Even though you own the office, it's still one of those things where you, it's that imposter syndrome, right? You feel like yeah. the outsider kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it helped me a lot. It really did. So you're onto something. So, okay. So 2014, you start with movement, right? And you're with movement for a little while, right? For a few years. Yeah. Yeah. I was there for a few years. I left, I came back, I left again. They're, they're a great company. Like I'll always yeah. have a well, Casey's, real, yeah, like, dude, an awesome man. guy. I mean, I'll always have like a super soft spot in my heart. And it, it's funny, my best production month ever, I think, was like February of 2014. I did like 16 million in production. And then like a moron, I decided to write a book and start a coaching program. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know, I, I've literally never heard that described that way before. But okay, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> in, in retrospect, Mike, this is this is no joke. The the month I did like 15, 16 million, I had a loan officer who was, you know, she didn't really need to work for me because she's very core competent. Um, yeah. she was working under my whatever branch or something. And she's like, you know, Scott, if I could just get to like two and a half million a month, 
I'd be super happy. I'd be financially secure, yada, yada, yada. Well, I started to divide my attention between coaching and mortgages and other business ventures. And she just stayed the path, stayed in the same Keller Williams office. And in, you know, 2020, when everybody was printing money, she did 250 million. So she did like 20 million a month instead of the two and a half that was her goal. And sometimes I think about it, I'm like, if I was just more selfish with my time and I didn't have this shiny object syndrome where I wanted to kind of be like a intellectual philanthropist and help other people, if I would have just been greedy and selfish and stayed the path and just done mortgages, you know, I, I don't know if I would have ever been shot brosy and doing like a billion dollars a year, but I could have been a consistent couple hundred million dollar a year producer. And I look back at that sometimes, Mike, and I'm like, man, I'm glad I wrote the book. I'm super glad that I've been able to help people the the weekend we just had with our coaching client fills me up more than closing any amount of loans. So it's like personal satisfaction couldn't be better. Yeah. Bank account could have been six or seven or $8 million higher had I just yeah. stayed. Yeah. 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 But here's the thing, okay? Here's the thing. There's not a lot of heart warmth, okay? In the six, seven, eight million. I get it. I get it. Three o'clock in the morning, you wake up, you look at the balance, it makes you feel good, makes you feel warm and fuzzy. I get all that. Right. Okay. But the helping people deal is something it, it, you know, they tell you all the time that people will forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Yeah. Okay. And you, I hope that's true. You're changing lives, dude. You're changing lives. I promise you, you are. And, you know, I don't think that it was a moronic thing. I mean, I know you're, I know you're joking. But, right, right. but it, you know, you put so much into people, you put so much into your coaching, you put so much into your book, you put so much into, and I'm talking passion, I'm talking real emotion, real caring, your heart, the whole thing, you put so much into what you do, it matters, dude, it matters. And it's more, it's, I believe when it's all said and done, it'll be way more important than that extra money. Okay. I really do. I really do from the bottom of my heart. So, okay. So, so you're with, you're with movement and then you left movement and went to Homebridge or someplace. No, I went to uh new American funding. Right. Uh, American. Sorry. Yeah. We, uh, right. we had a, we had an opportunity. I partnered up with a guy who's still a great friend of mine, Justin Bale. Uh, we partnered up. He had, you know, I don't know, 60, 70, $80 million book of business. I had something similar. We partnered up. We're like, hey, let's go do 100, 150 million and yeah. we'll manage some people. And so, you know, they made us uh, a branch manager, regional manager. You know, they're at, at one point with effectively two assistants, we were doing 120 million, 150 million in business. We were managing 30 other loan officers. We were recruiting. He was doing some uh, property investing. I was doing some coaching. I was like, in what world did I decide to have kids, man? Like, this is crazy. I got too much going on. Um, and, you know, I discovered a few things about myself during that couple of years working for New American. Like one, we can do so much more than we think we can. Like with some with some good time management and a quality assistant or two, whoever's watching this, whatever you think your maximum capacity is, yeah, you can do, you yeah, can do way more, yeah. you know? Stop watching reruns of The Walking Dead or Wheel of Fortune, you know, stop the endless silly scrolling on social media. Like, like there, we lose so much efficiency in the modern day by being totally distracted. So I learned, uh, one, we can do a whole lot more than we think we can. Yeah. And two, um, managing loan officers was the bane of my existence. Yeah. 
Like I just, I cannot do it. I love coaching. You know, you pay me, I give you advice mm-hmm. and you decide whether you want to execute or not, because you already paid me for the advice. You already paid right. me for the scripts and the, the workflows and everything. But what would drive me nuts, and I don't know if you've ever experienced this managing, is you know some loan officer would walk into my office and be like, hey, so um, I was thinking about doing this thing. Uh, how, how do you think I should do it? And then you, split, you know, spend half an hour explaining them how to do it, explaining to them how to do it, whether it's marketing or putting a file together. And they're like, okay, yeah, thanks. Well, I'm going to go do it this way. Yeah. And I'm like, well, first of all, if you were always going to do it your way, either go do it your way. And then right. if it blows up in your face, I'm your boss. I'll help you save the day or restructure the deal or write a check to get you out of trouble or whatever. Um, but like save the half hour of my time right. or accept the fact that, I don't know, maybe I know a thing or two. You should just do it my way. But the absolute worst possible possible scenario mm-hmm. is you ask me for my feedback and then do exactly the opposite. Yeah. And that would just happen over and over and over again. And I, it just blew my mind. And so managing um, salespeople, not my cup of tea. Um, yeah. Love coaching them. Don't like yeah, managing. I, I, I totally get where you're coming from. I I managed loan officers. I had 48 at one point. I'm uh, sorry. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, you you see the gray hair? Yeah. Oh yeah, so, yeah. I got right, you too. Yeah, right. Come on, man. So you know, I enjoyed the process. I enjoyed some of the things that that I that we did and some of the things we accomplished. We literally took people from zero to you know, tens of millions of dollars in closings and and they did really, really well and they followed the model and all that kind of thing, right? The thing was nearly every single place I went, I was the top producer in some places by 70%. Yeah. And it was, Mike, you got a minute? Mike, you got a minute? Mike, you got yeah. a minute? Mike, you got a minute? And here's the thing. When Mike had a minute and Mike gave you a minute, and I'm, you know, talking about myself in the third person, that's really good, huh? Right? Sat down with him listen to whatever it was was going on and nearly every single time it was this there's something that they want from me that gives them the shortcut so they don't have to work as hard as i work right and do more business there's something that i obviously know because of the business that i'm doing other than work my ever loving took us off right like you're right. talking about distractions and all that kind of stuff right you know, I, I would literally live my life to where I wanted distractions, right? Like I was dying for distractions because right. it was the same thing over and over and over, right? And it's like, you know, and so I got to a point at one point where I moved out of the office. How are you going to manage loan officers and not be in the office? It's very simple. You do it by phone or you meet them somewhere, right? Coffee shop, whatever, but you meet them on the way to your to your appointment or to the to the office that you're going to call on that kind of thing you or you put them in your car and you make them ride with you while you're solving whatever the problem is okay yeah put on the move right i got more efficient and i did a lot more with a lot less time because the whole thing was we're going to waste your time as much as we possibly can and then we're not going to do it the way that you suggest that we do it we're going to do it the way we decide to do it because we've been losing all along and we're just going to lose some more doing right, you, right. You doing our deal right we're just going to go down the, down the drain you know and you're going to get I, to witness it i i managed a guy who I, I i love this guy i have like i have a real soft spot in my heart for him and we had a very um a, a little bit of like an adversarial relationship where he would walk in and i you know i'll just i'll just call him bill i'd be like bill 
you got five minutes or just go blow it up your way and call me when you need some help fixing it. Right. He'd be like, yeah, okay, okay. All right, here's what I think we're gonna do. And I'm like, all right, cool. Like if we can get this out of the way in five minutes, you can have my undivided attention. If not, just go blow it up however you thought you were supposed to do it. And then we'll fix it. We'll put it back we'll together. Right. Yeah, yeah. We'll get yeah, the gorilla but, glue out and the scotch tape and we'll put it back together. Yeah, exactly. But don't come in here and waste an hour of my time only to blow it up anyway. And then I got to spend right. another hour of my time fixing it. Just blow it up and we'll fix it together. Right. Uh, Just do it the efficient uh, way. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you go to North America or New American and then you come back to movement. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I realized I didn't like managing. Um, you know, I, 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 I I don't think anything like nefarious ever happened with the uh, kind of promises from Movement Mortgage. But uh, one of the things about coming back is they're like, hey, we've got this new PL model. You know, we know you just want to produce, you're not loving management. And by the way, we really want to bring you into the fold to do more corporate coaching. That was all great. You know, who knows whether it was an accident or lip service or whatever. It really never ended up materializing. And I give them a pass on it because. Um, I came over at the end of 2019, right? And then COVID hits and nobody's traveling and nobody's doing anything and nobody feels like they need coaching because, you know, business is just dropping from the trees, from the skies, coming out of the ground, coming out of the ground. Like who doesn't want a loan when it's, you know, 2.875. So right. that just never materialized. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a little crude. I use a lot of foul language. You know, I have a podcast called, on the edge podcast that I do as a passion project. And, um, and I'll talk to anybody, you know, interviewed a drag queen interviewed some gal that's on only fans. And yeah, I'll literally talk to anybody. Like I'm a pretty hardcore libertarian. I'm super judgmental of politics and political parties and political candidates, but I kind of love everybody. I'll talk to anybody. And so it's funny when I, when I resigned from a uh, movement, I was talking to one of my leaders and I was like, hey, man, I'm going to go over to Synergy One. Like, you know, most mortgage banks are about the same. I can do similar type of business over there. And they really want to invest in me, like coaching for the company and being their in-house coach. And like the words were kind of still hanging out there in a cartoon bubble, you know, like over my head. And the manager immediately cut me off and was like, oh, yeah, Scott, you know, I don't think you were ever going to be the guy here at Movement. You know, it's a very like kind of more prim and proper company with very Christian ethos. And, you know, you're the type of guy that will interview uh, whoever, whoever, whatever they said on the podcast. I'm like, wait a minute, boss. I'm like, I know you don't watch the podcast. Right. So that means this conversation has been had before. And I, no. I get it. Like, you know, you're not going to certain people's temperament aren't going to fit every corporate culture. Again, still have a super soft spot in my heart for movement. I think there's some great people over there, respect the heck out of the leadership, but uh, I don't think I was their guy for the, uh, for the in-house coaching. Well, um, I'm going to tell you something. When I found out you were coming over, I was so pumped. I was there and I was so excited that you were coming over to do coaching for the company and the, you know, the whole deal. Right. I mean, I'm like, I'm literally sitting there going, these guys are smart. They are really smart. And when they did not take advantage of having you be there as a coach and available to coach us, right? It really bothered me. I didn't say anything to anybody. I just right. kind of left quietly, right? Yeah. Um, and I actually left when you left, you know? Um, yeah. but, but it was one of those things where it really, it really bugged me. You know, um, I was super pumped that you were coming over and I was super pumped that you were going to you were going to do all this stuff because I remember when they made the announcement 
And dude, I was, I was really excited. I was really excited. So, um, so yeah, it was, it was kind of disappointing, but you ended up landing on your feet just like you always do. Right. So you go to Synergy One. What was your favorite thing about Synergy One? Yeah, I mean, I still work there and they're a great company, like a smaller mortgage bank, maybe a couple hundred. Oh, that's weird. I'm getting a call from uh, the front desk. A um, couple hundred loan officers there at um, at Synergy One. And what I've loved about them so far is that they really punch above their weight on yeah. product mix and technology. Yeah. And so, you know, I still service at a very high level, the Los Angeles market. And, you know, just like San Diego, you can be, you know, $200,000 condo to $7 million castle within 10 blocks of each other. Yeah. And so you got to have that product mix from down payment assistant to super jumbo yeah. to really service the, the major metropolitan areas. And um, so, yeah, I've just been been really impressed with Synergy, their their technology, kind of everything working together, and uh, then their product mix. They they really bat above their pay grade. And then, of course, you know it, this this is not a secret. They're paying me to be the in house coach, which I absolutely love. That's and awesome. um, you know, it's just it's just a new experience, new opportunity to build the resume to, you know, coach at a corporate structure. And uh, yeah, so far, so good. I have no plans to leave. It's a great place to do mortgages, great place to coach, and I'm pretty happy. Are you working with Tori Larson? Yeah, a little bit. Tell him I said hi, will you? Will do. I worked with him 24 years ago. Wow. 24 yeah. years ago. Isn't that the crazy thing about this business? Like, you you just right. kind of run into the same people over and over again, you right. know? Absolutely. Yeah. Crazy, man. And they were, it was a wild time. Absolutely wild time. And it was probably some of the most fun I had in the mortgage business was working with Tori and, um, and what we were doing at the time. We had a company called home capital funding and, um, that was a lot of fun, but that was a long time ago. Right. And it was back when we were starting the, the Keller Williams office. Cause we, I literally was working with them when, when we ended up getting together with Keller Williams and opening that franchise. So, um, that was a, that was a cool time. So please tell him I said, hi. So, I'm a big fan of Synergy One Lending and a big fan of Tori Larson, as I'm sure you can tell. Years ago, I was on radio <clears throat> with Craig Sewing, and we went to to Synergy One's offices in, in down in um, San Diego in Mission Valley, and Tori was in the conference room, and we're sitting there waiting. We're sitting there waiting, you know, right? And I can see him in there, in there doing his thing. And I finally just walked up because the door was clear. I finally walked up to the door and he saw me and he's like, get in here. And I go in and give him a hug. And I said, hey, here's something I've been wanting to tell you for years. And he goes, what's that? And I said, you're in my conference room. I need you out. Right. So it, it cool guy, really cool guy. So, okay. So we're up to today. Okay. What's that? So you're in Austin, Texas for your coaching, right? You just did your coaching event. So let's talk about what you're doing in coaching. Are you writing any more books? You know, what are you up to? Oh man, so much, so much. Um, <laughs> what a shocker. Yeah. The first thing is I'm staying in Austin, just did my coaching event, the year end uh, planning retreat for all my people. And I'm staying here for a group called Front Row Dads, which for any dads that are listening to this, Front Row Dads is start as a podcast, turn into a mastermind, amazing guy named John Vroman that runs it. And it's, uh, you know, it's fathers with businesses, not business owners trying to be dads. And so it's just a good opportunity to like rekindle that love of like, hey, I'm a, I'm a dad and a family man first. And then the business supports that, not the other way around. Right. Uh, so that that's just a, 
a quarterly or biannual retreat I try to get to every year. That's like, it just, it, it's, it's a great group of guys and it just really reminds us what's important. So continuing to lean into front row dads, I've got, uh, I've got two fiction books and two nonfiction books that are in some stage of outlining. And just it. like my, just like my last book, I'll get to a certain point, which is how it happened. I got to a certain point and I told my wife, I said, uh, Hey, I'm checking into a hotel at Huntington beach this weekend. And I'm not coming out until the book is written. And yeah. I finished the book in about three and a half days, a wow. lot of caffeine, a lot of cigars, a lot of typing on the balcony. And, um, so yeah, I've got a couple other books that are probably en route. Uh, the fiction ones are kind of in the same vein of like a Shawshank redemption type thing. And then I've got some, uh, nonfiction business books and then just really leaning into being a dad. You know, I've got a, a five-year-old, a seven-year-old and a 21-year-old all at very different stages in their life. Um, and this is this is wild, actually. This is the first podcast that I'm gonna talk about this. Uh, my wife and I, with another couple, we're opening a school in Nevada. So we moved uh, We knew, moved about two years ago from uh, LA full-time up to Henderson. I, I still keep a place in LA because I'm down there so much for business. And my mother-in-law is one of the most amazing human beings you've ever met. Uh, but we're up in Nevada now and the, the downside of no state taxes and really low property taxes is the school systems are garbage. Uh, but then again, I think most of the public school systems in America are garbage. So my wife and I are just like really leaning into the type of community we want to build. And we're building a school right now called Apogee. It's a partnership with, um, with a gentleman named Tim Kennedy out of Texas, which is another reason I'm here. He's a uh, former Green Beret, former UFC fighter, just really passionate about like growing sovereign Americans. And he has a, a program called Sheepdog Response or a company that does, you know, preparation and emergency medical and shooting and stuff like that. And so we're partnering with him there, uh, him and his partner, Matt Bedreau, they're opening somewhere between 50 and hundred schools nationwide starting September of 2024. So we're going to be one of those affiliates uh, along with the healing family. Who's awesome. The, this family that we connected with at a super high level. So yeah, it's probably going to start small 20 or 30 kids, but like our job, our, 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 like, kind of our mission is to grow that into a couple hundred kids uh, outside of Vegas that just, you know, they want to be healthier living, like more sovereign Americans and just like a less politicized educational environment where we're just like, we're building real learners and real like Socratic thinkers. And so that's kind of our new mission, which again, going back to the college dropout, almost high school dropout, very awkward that I'm starting a school. Yeah. Uh, cool but man. it's cool this is legacy yeah. stuff you know this is a big deal yeah yeah i'm gonna lean on my wife because she used to do after school programming for like nonprofits that plugged into schools and the other family that we're uh partnering with uh the wife um has a, a master's in education and and worked really worked in like primary grades until she realized that the system is just a complete mess and totally corrupt and then she got her kids out and now we're going to try to get a bunch of other kids out. So uh, if anybody wants to donate, look up Apogee Henderson, because we're going to be taking some grant money for uh, kids that are less fortunate than my own that can't afford to go to private school. Because uh, eventually it's not going to be able to happen in the first couple of years, but eventually we want to get enough grants and donations that every kid that is paying to come, we can get one kid to come uh, on the, uh, you know, basically on the trust fund of the school. So spell Apogee for me. Uh, A-P-O-G-E-E, -E. apogee, then, it means like the apex or the height of something. 
So is it Apogee Henderson? Is that yeah, it's apogeehenderson.org.com? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't even know that we have the website built yet. Okay. Okay. On, in, on Instagram, we're Apogee Henderson. So uh, okay. that's probably where all the updates will be. Well, let's, they can look it up on Instagram. There you go. Yeah. We just wanted to make sure we gave them somewhere to go in case somebody hears about this and they're and they're motivated to do something. Because uh, there are a lot of people that listen to these podcasts that love people, love education, love kids, you know, the whole thing. Um, I love what you're doing. I think it's awesome. So there's, uh, there's one opening in San Diego. So I'll have to, uh, I'll have to make the introduction to the guy that's opening in San Diego. Yeah, let's go. I'd love to, I'd love to help if I can. So in fact, I'd love to interview him. So um, I'm writing a book starting month, starting next month um, on homeownership. Love and it. The reason we're doing it is there, are, according to Freddie Mac, there are 50 million millennials that are Ooh. potentially going to buy a home in the next 13 years. Amazing. 50, five, zero, 50 million. Okay. A whole bunch of them don't trust real estate because when they were children, the great recession hit and they watched the people around them lose their houses. Yeah. I would love it. If you would let me interview you for that book, would you be up for that? I'd be totally up for it. If you want me to write the, uh, the, uh, preface, I'd love to do something like that, but yeah, I'd love it, buddy. That'd be awesome. Thank you in in advance for that. That would be really, really cool. I'll be back with you to, to do that. Um, so anything else you'd like to cover before we sign off? Yeah. I mean, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, right? Is that, is that the same? Something like that. And who's uh, Jack exactly? Just I don't know. Just yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta have some fun in life. Right. So yeah. I still, I, even though I try to be super productive and relatively healthy, uh, I still have a bottle of wine and a cigar ready to go. Cause I got a friend coming over to meet me tonight by the fire pit and we're going to awesome. have a couple of drinks and smoke a cigar. And, I uh, love I loved boxing for a decade. And when I started having kids, I was like, eh, maybe getting punched in the head at 40, 45 years old, isn't the best plan. So maybe switch it to, and, and now I'm just like a total, like, uh, you know, Jocko super fan and trying to trying to catch up to all the jujitsu players at 45, which is real hard to do. My back and my knees don't work the same way they did when I was 25. So I know that's, that's feeling passion and trying to lean into that and have fun and watch movies with the kids. And life is good, man. Like, like it's a really, it's been a really hard 18 months in the mortgage business. I think it's going to be another hard year or two and it's always seasonal, right? There's good times and bad times. It's really hard right now. Um, but life is really good. So uh, I don't I don't have a whole lot to complain about other than my cholesterol. Yeah, I'm happy for you, man. I really am. And nobody deserves it better more than you do. Nobody does. I cannot tell you enough how much I appreciate you, how much I appreciate how you've contributed to our industry. And you know, what you've given to us, we need to give back, right? And it's a big, big deal. You're a major part of this whole thing. And I cannot thank you enough. So from Appreciate the bottom of my heart, buddy. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being on the Mike Litton experience. Have a great time out there. Solve all the world's problems tonight with the cigar and the wine, okay? So the rest of us can relax, all right? Will do. Thank you again, buddy. Appreciate you. Thank, thank you, sir. Take care. We hope you enjoyed another episode of the Mike Litton experience. If you did, do us a favor. Smash that subscribe button. Tell your friends, family, and coworkers about our program. And wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating. It helps us to connect with quality people just like you. And that's a wrap. Another episode of the Mike Litton Experience in the books. Reach out to Mike on Instagram at Litton Realty. Want to meet with Mike? 
Check out calendly.com slash Rio 760. 